Father, what a wonderful privilege it is to come before you and to sing your praises and to declare your excellencies and to give you the honor to your name. What a privilege it is. And I thank you so much for uh, this time that we've had to worship you and to praise you and to sing your praises. And Lord, I pray as we continue to worship you, you would work through your word in our hearts, that you would enable me to share what you intended and that uh, we would uh, respond with willing hearts and that you would in, use your word to bring about that which is pleasing in us for you. So, Father, we thank you for this time and we commit it to you now in Jesus' name. Well, there are many things that can cause us to become discouraged, whether it's a physical ailment, lack of sleep, uh, the normal everyday pressures of work and relationships. Uh, people are often the, the venue in which we can become discouraged the most at times, right? And certainly our own failures and our own sin can cause us to become discouraged. Yet there's one area that I think we get caught off guard uh, when, we, when we get hit by this area and we become discouraged. That area is when we're doing the right thing, when we're serving the Lord Jesus Christ and we get uh, caught off guard and we are tempted to be discouraged. Well, today we're going to see how we can endure when discouragement hits. We're going to see from the book of Haggai encouragement for God's discouraged servants. Turn with me to Haggai. We're going to be looking at verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9 as we continue our study of this wonderful book. Now, the context, after the conquest of Canaan, the Jews were in the land for 490 years. And after the, king was, after the kingdom was divided, when Solomon died, the northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah uh, continued to be admonished by the prophets over and over again uh, that they needed to repent, that they needed to turn back to the Lord or God would bring his discipline upon them. Now, the northern kingdom was taken into captivity by the Assyrians, and then soon Judah would be taken into captivity by the Babylonians. And within that, the temple was destroyed, and the city of Jerusalem was destroyed in that last third and final siege of Nebuchadnezzar on Jerusalem. That was around 586 B.C. Now, when the Persians defeated the Babylonians in 539, as prophesied, Cyrus, a pagan king led by the Lord, took over and changed the policy of captive peoples. And within that, he allowed and decreed in 538 B.C., for the Jews to be able to return to their homeland to build the temple. Now, they had become fairly, fairly comfortable in, the, in Babylon. And within that, about 50,000 devout uh, followers of, of, of the Lord decided to leave what was a comfortable place. We see that in Ezra chapter 3, verses 8 to 10. Now, unfortunately, Ezra also records that they began the work on the temple, but then they stopped when there was opposition. And when that opposition had been lifted, they never continued back in the work of the temple. The very reason they had been taken out of Babylon to go back. They didn't finish, they didn't go back to the work. And so now the year is 520 BC, when the book of Haggai is being written. It's been 18 years since they were released and 16 years since they laid the foundation of the temple. And this brings us to the immediate context. And so today we're going to see, I believe, how to endure when discouragement hits those who are following the Lord and obeying his word. That in mind, again, turn to Haggai chapter 2, 
verses 1 to 9. But we're going to walk through and review and look at chapter 1 a little bit. So you'll, we'll finger back there as I mentioned those verses. Now with that in mind, chapter 1, we saw that through the prophet Haggai, God had called the people on their misplaced priorities. Look at verse 1 of chapter, chapter 1, verse 2 of chapter 1. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? What was wrong? Well, they were giving their attention to their own lives, their own houses, when the very reason why they had left Babylon was laid desolate. The house of the Lord, they had not been working on it. And things were backward. They were focused on their own lives rather than on what God had called them to do, which was to rebuild the temple. And it's in this chapter, chapter 1, that God reveals the first step on how to identify misplaced priorities. And what we need to do is we need to listen to God's analysis. You see, so often we look at our own lives and we think it from our perspective. We say, everything's fine. We're good to go. But the reality is God's word, when laid across our hearts, reveals truly where we are at. And so they were called to consider their ways, to set their heart upon their ways. Look at verse 5. Now, therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is nothing to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And the one who earns, earns wages to put it in a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Now, they had enough money, it seems, to have paneled houses, which was very expensive to get that wood from Lebanon. But evidently, God was allowing their money or whatever it might be to just slip through their pockets. He was bringing his disciplinary hand on them, and they weren't satisfied. They, they ate, but they weren't satisfied. They drank, they were not satisfied. They were clothed, but they were not warm enough. And we saw one of the first uh, symptoms of misplaced priorities in this life. You know, when we find ourselves not satisfied, it's, it's an evidence something's going on in our lives. Something's going on where we're not content, when we're not content. And certainly we see that with them. But also we see that God had placed his disciplinary hand on them. Look at verses 9 through 11. You look for much, but behold, it, it, it comes, and I'll read verse 8 in a minute, so I didn't skip that, but I'll read in a minute. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because my house lies desolate while each one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I called for a drought on the land, and on the mountains, and on the grain, and on the new wine, and on the oil, on the ground, and on men, and on cattle, and all the labor of your hands. God's disciplinary hand was on his people. Now, these were the most devout Yahweh followers. They were the ones who left Babylon to come back and actually be about God's work. They were the ones who wanted to follow the Lord. You know, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we decide to follow Jesus. We give up everything. We want to follow Jesus, but yet we can get sidetracked. And this life can encumber us in, in different ways. And we can become uh, sidetracked from what God would have us do. Now we know that the Lord whom he loves, the Lord disciplines, Proverbs chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 12. 
And so God was allowing these physical and spiritual droughts to cause them to then hear his word, to consider their ways, set their heart upon their ways. Think about the path of your feet. What do you do every day? What do you do when you get up? What are your ways? What do you think about? Set your heart on your ways. Set your heart on your ways. And what were they to do? What was to be their priority as followers of the Lord? Verse 8, go up to the mountains, bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and glorified says the Lord. So they were to be about God's work. They were to go and bring wood and build, rebuild the temple, that which they had left Babylon to do. They were to be about God's work, the very reason they came out of Babylon back to the land of Israel. They were to do so that they would please and glorify God. And this should be the reason behind everything that we do as believers. Now, they are to rebuild his house, the temple, the physical temple, which was destroyed by the Babylonians. That glorious house that Solomon had built uh, and David had prepared and had got everything ready for it. And Solomon fulfilled that and built that house, that gloriously uh, uh, wonderful house that God had given them the plans. And they did it according to those plans. It had been destroyed. And now they were to rebuild. Now, what about us? You know, should we be rebuilding a physical temple? Should we be building church buildings? Should we be about the physical portions of, excuse me, the physical portions of that? Well, I shared last time, the time before, the imagery of the temple in the Old Testament. I'm just going to briefly review that. We know that although God does not dwell in temples made of human hands, the purpose of the tabernacle and the temple was to be a visible picture of the heavenly realities. And also, he would use that to identify with his people, personifying his presence, so they could see the manifestation of his glory. And the earthly temple was a copy or shadow of that heavenly reality, Hebrews chapter 8 and 9. And within the physical temple, there were sacrifices offered by priests according to the law that pointed to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, who died for our sins. And now believers, we know, are the temple of the living God. We are the temple of the living God. God dwells in us. We are his temple. We are his building project. We are what he is building up through the word of God that we would offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to him. He is building us up individually and corporately. And that's what he's doing, that he would be glorified. And guess what, brothers and sisters? We can get sidetracked. We can intend. I'm not talking about those of you who could care less about following Jesus. I'm talking about those of you who have given your life to Christ and want to follow Christ wholeheartedly. There's nothing, there's no divide in your heart. You want to follow Jesus. You want to obey Him. But we can get sidetracked. We can get sidetracked. Things of this life can become larger than they really should be. And we cannot be about His business. So how does this apply to us? We need to glorify God. We need to see and recognize what God is doing through the church individually and corporately that we would be built up to glorify Christ. Again, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We see that so clearly in Scripture that God is building us. Like we see in 1 Peter chapter 2, we are living stones being built upon the foundation of Christ Jesus. He being the cornerstone to offer those spiritual sacrifices we are the temple of the living god and god is building us up 
And so for those of you who have come to faith in Jesus, you have left Babylon. You have chosen to follow Jesus. You have chosen to obey him. How's the condition of his house? What's the condition of his house? Has it, uh, is it the same as it was 10 years ago? Is it the same as it was 16 years ago? How's, is, it, is the foundation in ruins? What's the condition of his house? Well, we see here that we are to consider our ways. We are to set our heart upon our ways to see if we are about his business. Now, we saw last week a wonderful thing that these Jews who were true believers responded. They responded to the word of God. They responded to God's exhortation. And by the way, reproofs are, are for, for life. We see that throughout scripture. If you read through Proverbs, those who are truly his, those are the ones who respond to reproof. Those are the ones who God's word works in their hearts. And you see that. And so this brings us to the end of his sermon. And we see in um, chapter 1, verse 12, notice what happens. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheetil, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And remember, those are the leaders. Zerubbabel would have been king at that time. He was in the line of David. You'll see him in the genealogy in Matthew. But yet they were under Cyrus, so there was no king in Judah. And then they had the high priest, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak. And then, notice, with the remnant, excuse me, with all the remnant of the people, verse 12. And I like that word, the remnant. It's the few that actually are following Jesus, right? It's the remnant. You see that word throughout the Old Testament. The remnant of the people. They're the ones that are his people. A lot of people name his name, but not many following him. We see that in the Old Testament, and we see that uh, too in the church these days. The remnant of the people, what did they do? They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent them. They obeyed the word the way that God had brought it forth. God brought it forth through Haggai. They obeyed the word as it came forth, as God delivered it his way, as the Lord God had, their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence. The people showed reverence. And we looked last week, that term obey, it's a heart issue. Hear, O Israel, it's the term hear, but it's when you hear with a desire to obey. The great Shema, we tell our kids, listen to me, and we're saying behind that, do what we say. Hear, O Israel, listen up. And they listened with the intent of obeying. And that's what believers do. You hear the word of God. You come here to church, not here to, to argue or to debate or to make sure, check everything out. Certainly we're Bereans, but we come to hear the word of God. We come here with a right heart to do what he says. And they heard it. And they did as we see. They did as we see in a minute. They did obey. And notice they also feared. They also feared. They showed reverence for the Lord. You want to know if God's word is working in your heart? It produces reverence. It produces reverence. A, a, a new sense of honor and glory to him. They feared him. They feared him. It's not a fear of being afraid. It's a fear of reverence for the Lord. It's, a, it's seeing him rightly. He's in charge. He's a good God. He's a gracious God who has led us out of Babylon back here and who has led us out of our sin here, right? Out of the sinful sin that we were been forgiven from, right? And so we have the tremendous reality. And so this is how the Lord wants us to respond when he calls upon us to consider our ways. To hear with the intent of obeying and then reverencing him. And that's going to produce uh, something. Notice how God responds to them. Verse 13. Then 
Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke, and last week we saw the term commission, is the same word as messenger, they're basically a little cognitive, spoke the message. The messenger spoke the message. The message of the Lord, a commission of the Lord to the people saying, here's the Lord's response. Isn't this great? I am with you, declares the Lord. Now, was he not with them before? Well, he wasn't with them in the sense that he was proving of what they were doing. This people says it's not time to rebuild, right? He wasn't with them in the sense that he approved of their lives and like not being about his business. But now they want to obey and heaven is on their side. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. You know, back in Ezra, we see that the Lord stirred up their spirits to leave Babylon, to follow him, to do what he wanted them to do. And now they have heard his word. They have the right heart. I want to obey the word of God. And they are fearing God. And now God stirs up their spirit, enables them after having shared that he is with them, his presence and his empowerment. We see that. And then notice what happens. Verse 14. So he stirred up the, the spirit of the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheetil, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they what? They came and worked on the house of the Lord. They were about God's business. They were doing it. They responded rightly. When we are about the hearing and fearing of his word and him, he then encourages us and enables us to do what he calls us to do. We can't do it. I can't preach. I can't share with you. I can't use the giftings that God has given me unless he enables me to do that. And he is faithful when we desire to obey him in our lives. And we set him first. He is faithful in that. And so we saw the proper response And within that, we saw God's encouragement and his empowerment, and they got to work. Well, some of you today, you may have realized, maybe the last two weeks, you're not about the Lord's business. And you really do know the Lord. You do know him. You're not uh, deceiving yourself like those in James who who look in a mirror and they, they get convicted for a second. They turn away and they forget who they really are. You're not like that. There are people who will come to church, they'll hear the word, and they'll walk right out there, and they've forgotten everything they have heard because they don't know the Lord. James says their religion is worthless. But if you're a true believer and you've been convicted, uh, where are you at? Are you about his business? Are you desiring for, for him to be built up in you? Do you seek him throughout the day? Do you want his word to work in you? Are you seeking to be built up in the body of Christ? Are you wanting to become more like Jesus Christ? Are you wanting to grow in your relationship with Jesus? That's the way it should be. How will you respond? Will you listen? Will you fear? Will you obey the Lord? So with that in mind... We have this body here of remnant of people and the leaders who are obeying the Lord. And now we come to chapter 2. And I find this very interesting that uh, they're going to get discouraged, it appears. And God is gracious to encourage them. Look in chapter 2. Let's read through verses 1 to uh, 3 to start with. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, 
Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it seem not seem to you like nothing in comparison? Doesn't it seem like nothing? You see, what we're going to see is that a little, the timing here, a little uh, over a month has gone by, or a little less than a month has gone by. They are obeying the Lord, and uh, three or so weeks have gone by, and all of a sudden, God through Haggai brings another message to them. And he asks them, who has, who here saw the temple in its former glory? Does it look to you like nothing in comparison? You know, God is gracious here. Earlier in chapter 1, he confronted them, didn't he? He said, well, why are you about your houses when you should be about mine? It lays in ruins. He confronts them. Here he is very gracious. They're about his business. And he comes along graciously to say, oh, who saw this this way? And he's going to talk to him through Haggai. Again, on the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, again, the word of the Lord came through Haggai. The word of the Lord. God is speaking to them. God is, we're going to see, encouraging them. And folks, it's God's analysis that matters. You know, we can uh, try to analyze, and we do analyze our lives, but we are not to lean on our own understanding. In all our ways, we are to acknowledge him, and he will make our path straight. We're not to trust in mankind. We're not to trust in our own judgment. We need God's judgment. And they're following the Lord, and God was gracious to bring his word to them. And now we as believers, we have his word, and it is up to us to allow his word to work on our hearts. You're not going to be lying in bed, and God is going to say, Thus says the Lord through so-and-so, unless you're reading the word. And so, yes, God was gracious to come alongside them at the right time. But the way he comes along us at the right time is through listening to the word of God, being in it, allowing your heart to be sensitive to what God says. Look at Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17. And Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. That's what we call him. Uh, not too successful, by the way, from a human standpoint. Uh, no converts, basically. Uh, he was faithful to God, faithful to the word, faithful to his calling. Um, and we see that in the book of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, the Lord shares through him, Jeremiah 17, verse 5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. Cursed. You trust in man. You, you trust in your own flesh. You trust in yourself. You're cursed. You're cursed. And he says here, For he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see prosperity when prosperity comes, but will live in stony waste places in the wilderness and land of salt and without inhabitant. Blessed, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. It's not simply trusting in him. It's trusting him. You trust in the Lord. And he says that for he will be like, like a tree planted by water that extends its roots by a stream 
and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green, and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. The heart is deceitful than all else, and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Proverbs 28:28. he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. We want to trust in the Lord. We want his word to be that which works through our hearts. The word of God revealing where we're at. And God is coming here to reveal again. And what he says, look in verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? Well, it was 520 B.C., and now God asked the question, who among them has seen Solomon's temple in its former glory? And that was a glorious place. Read through uh, 1 Kings. Look at the building of that temple. You'll see it was a glorious place. Who is left among you? Now, there were not too many old-timers left who had seen the temple in its former glory, but there were some. And these probably were small children or teens at that time. When the first temple was destroyed in 586, here 66 years earlier. And we have a response actually, and when they, 16 years earlier, when they first built the foundation, there was an interesting response from the people. Turn to Ezra chapter 3. Ezra chapter 3. This is 16 years earlier when they first came out of Babylon, they rebuilt the foundation, when they never finished the work, but now they're getting back to it. Ezra chapter 3. It's a very interesting thing here. Ezra 3, verse 10. Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. And they sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Notice that? Everyone seems pretty happy. Wonderful situation. Then notice, yet many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers, the households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of the house was laid before their eyes. While many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy and the sound of weeping of the people. Uh, for the people shouted with a loud shout, and the shout sound was heard far away. You've got a scene where the old-timers back when they built the temple, they're looking at it going, they're crying. It is nothing like what God had done through David preparing and then Solomon building it. It was nothing. It was nothing. And the, the, the new generation is praising the Lord, but then they, everyone there kind of set it aside, as we saw. So back in our passage, we have the Lord through um, Haggai coming along to, I believe, address what's the cause of their discouragement, as we're going to see. He, does, he says, does it seem like nothing in comparison? Who among you saw the first one, God says? Does this right here that they're finally working on, they're being obedient with, seem like nothing in comparison. Does it seem like nothing? And evidently, um, those who had desired to obey had become discouraged. 
Possibly the barrage of comparison with the old temple. We have that. And folks, we do that, don't we? Now it appears to be valid on the surface to be, to be discouraged. God had built a beautiful temple before. God did it. God did it through Solomon. And now they're obeying him and it doesn't look too good. It's not even, it's nothing, nothing in comparison. But folks, I'll tell you right now, we need to recognize when we walk by sight and not by faith, you will always be discouraged. When you walk by what you see, you will always be discouraged. And that's the lesson we're going to see here today, that we walk by faith and not by sight, that we allow God to fill us in and help us understand from his viewpoint. You see, there was nothing wrong with Solomon's temple. It was a wonderful temple. But there was nothing wrong with the temple that they had begun to build here again. It was God's work, even though it did not appear like anything in comparison. Like anything. You know, folks, we can get tripped up this way. We compare God's work with us now, what he did with others. We look at a church, look at God's work through this ministry back then. Oh, for the good old days, whatever it might be. We look at what's he doing through us now. Maybe not. It's nothing in comparison. Folks, we need to be careful, as we're going to see. We need to be careful. Isn't this what happens to believers who want to follow the Lord? We make the decision to do what is right, and then we start to compare in relationship to other believers who, who have followed the Lord, and God did things through them. God did stuff through them, did amazing things. And yet it doesn't seem like what we're doing is anything in comparison at all. Isn't that tempting? One pastor writes, Don't stop the work because it doesn't compare it with something that was there in the past. This is one of the problems with God's people. We're always looking back to the past. We say, oh, for the days of so-and-so, oh, for the days of the church that we came from. Uh, we did it then, and we have these longings for those things that God did in the past, but what about today? What is he doing today? Folks, besides our sinful comparison at times we're tempted to do, there will also be others, maybe like these old men saying, you know, tempt us. This is nothing. The work that's going on is nothing like this. It's nothing in comparison. It's nothing. Maybe they were weeping like they were 16 years ago when everybody was praising God for the work and they were weeping over it because of what they had seen in the past. This is the trap that we can fall into when we walk by sight and not by faith. You know, there's been times throughout the times we've been at this church where people say, if you're preaching the word, God's going to grow it. And I always go, whoa, in my heart. He might, he might not. It's up to him. It's up to him. There's no guarantee for what God will do. We just need to be about his work and be faithful to it and trust him. Because if we get our eyes off of that onto what we see, we will be discouraged. Another pastor writes, does it sound like anything in your experience? I think anyone who has ever undertaken the work of God for the cause of Christ has felt this type of discouragement. The sense that your work and the work and the product seems so paltry. You pour into week after week, month after month, and the fruit is so minimal. Then you look back in history across town, you see the grand achievements of others, and your temple seems so trivial. And you get discouraged, and you are tempted to quit. Well, I believe they were discouraged, and God's going to encourage them. He's going to encourage them. And we see that, that we need to walk by faith and not by sight. Now, what are some factors that can cause us to be discouraged? Now, we've seen this already. Uh, one, obviously, uh, doubt concerning what God has said. We saw comparison already. You compare, 
you're, 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 you compare things, you're going to be discouraged. Because there's always something better somewhere, right? We should not be comparing. We should be focused on Jesus. But also, we can, if we doubt what God has said, we can become discouraged. Now, I'm going to look at these verses a little more in depth when we go through, but I want to show you that what God says to them really counteracts where they were tempted. Look in verse 4. But now, take courage. Take courage. The, the implication is they were losing courage. They were not courageous. courageous. Maybe doubting, um, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, and all the people of the land. Take courage, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord. Maybe they're doubting. Maybe the Lord's not in this. These guys say it's nothing like the temple they had before. Maybe he's not in it. What am I doing? Take courage. Take courage. He says, I am with you. I am with you. And when we're about his will, by his strength, no matter what the results are, he is with us. And notice, I believe they were tempted to fear also. That can also lead to discouragement. Look at verse 5. As for the promise I made when you came out of Egypt, um, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. The, the implication is they were discouraged. They were not not courageous and they were fearing. They were fearing. God has to say, do not fear. You know, God is a gracious God because we know the fear of man brings a snare. When we fear what people think, we get a hook in our mouth and we are pulled away so quickly. When we, th- we And good people might say, you know, these are not the bad guys here saying, look at how nice it was back then. These are people that left also following the Lord. These are the old elderly ones. The trip probably was more difficult for them to come. And they're following the Lord. Sometimes it's well-meaning believers that can say things that cause us to pull our eyes off of what Christ is doing. We are not to fear and we're to be, as we will see, courageous. We are not to fear. Uh, Isaiah chapter 41, do not fear for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about for I am your God, the Lord says. He says, I will strengthen you. Surely I'll behold you with my righteous right hand. But when we walk by sight, we will always be discouraged. Don't fear. Trust in the Lord. And then lastly, we see a lack of understanding of God's plan can actually cause us to be discouraged. When we don't know the big picture or we are ignoring the big picture that God has placed, we can be discouraged when the things we do do not seem to be as glorious and grand as maybe other things God is doing in other places. Haggai chapter 2, verse 6, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Lord of hosts, once more in a little while I am going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I am going to shake the nations and they will come with the wealth of all nations. For I will fill, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Something really big is going to happen that you can't even imagine. Notice he begins that person with a four. He says earlier, don't be afraid, don't fear, for I'm doing something that is way bigger than what you ever thought is going on with this paltry house you are building right now in obedience to my word. 
So certainly comparison, I believe, is the main issue here. Uh, what does it look like in comparison? Isn't it nothing? But also doubt, fear, lack of understanding can be contributing factors to being discouraged when you want to follow and obey the Lord. So then, what's the first step in overcoming discouragement? Let God reveal the cause. Let God's word bathe your heart so that you see things rightly, that you see them from his perspective, that you don't walk by faith or by sight, but you walk by faith, that you walk by faith. Now, do you want to be a discouraged servant of the Lord? Just don't open your Bible. You'll be discouraged. Start looking at everything around you. You will be discouraged. If you want to be encouraged, trust the Lord. He is with us when we are about his business and we should not fear. So how can we endure? First of all, let God reveal the reason why we're discouraged. Hey, we're comparing, whatever it might be. Okay, Lord, I shouldn't be doing that. I should have my eyes on you. What should I do now? Notice we need to let him encourage us. Verse 4, But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all the people of the land. Take courage, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. But now, there's a contrast there. In light of the discouragement, it seems like nothing in comparison. Nothing. Take courage. Take courage. And he says it three times. Take courage. Take courage. The term courage here speaks of strength, becoming strong, being courageous, growing firm, resolute. It's the opposite of being cowardly and fearful. Take courage. Take courage. You could almost translate it, be strong. Be strong. Now the context is faith. Be strong. You know, it's interesting. He commands three times and he says, declares the Lord or says the Lord, but it's the exact same thing. You can translate it, declares the Lord three times. And one says, says the Lord, but it's the same phrase. Take courage, declares the Lord. Take courage, declares the Lord. Take courage, declares the Lord. Be strong. Now certainly... This might bring up a memory for them. These are the ones who are following the Lord. These are the ones who have the law. These are the ones who know what happened when Moses came out of and what led the, led the Israelites out. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 31. Deuteronomy 31. This is Moses encouraging the Israelites to be about God's business and not be fearful of those in the land. God's going to take care of it if they trust him. Um, Deuteronomy 31 verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous. Then Moses called Joshua. This is another Joshua. This is Joshua the son of Nun who led led them into the, the promised land. And in the sight of all Israel he said, Be strong and courageous. For you shall go with the people into the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall give it to them as an inherit as an inheritance. And the Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He shall he will be with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then a little farther in verse 23, then he commissioned Joshua the son of Nun and said, Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the sons of Israel into the land which I swore to them, and I will be with you. I'll be with you. 
Be strong and courageous because God is with you. And back in our passage, no matter what it looks like, be strong and courageous because God is with you. You remember what God said to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1? Turn to Joshua chapter 1. You know, God's servants, the ones who really are following him, need to be reminded that we need to be strong and courageous because God is with us. We need to not let God's word depart from our, 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 our thoughts. Joshua 1, verse 6. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people the possession of the land, which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do all to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart your mouth from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so you shall be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous, do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And then Joshua commanded the people to do what God had said. The Lord is with you wherever you go. We are to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Ephesians chapter 6. There are all kinds of psalms which speak of the Lord. I love thee, O Lord, my strength. Psalm 18. The Lord is my strength and shield. Psalm 26. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Psalm 29, 11. Psalm 46, our God is a refuge and strength, a very present help. Psalm 46, in trouble. Verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob, our stronghold. Selah. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob, our stronghold. Selah. Do not fear, for I am with you. Isaiah 41.10, I read it before. He says, I will strengthen you. Surely I will hold you with my righteous right hand. Tremendous, wonderful encouragement for back in our passage in Haggai. But now, take courage. You're discouraged. You're about God's will. You're doing His will. You finally decide to do what He wants you to do with your kids. You're raising them the right way. It's hard. It's difficult. You're being discouraged. You're looking around to do the right thing. You're finally doing your work hardly under the Lord at your job and, and you're discouraged. Be strong and courageous. You're doing what's right. In the church and you don't see any results, be strong and courageous. Do what God says and trust him for he is with you. Be strong and courageous. He says, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. End of verse 4. Work. Work. Guess what? We tend not to do what God wants us to do and we're discouraged, aren't we? We tend to kind of go, I give up. We tend not to be about his business when we get discouraged. He says, work. Work. Be about his business. Do what he says. Trust him. Be strong and courageous. Why? For I am with you. You want to raise your kids in a godly fashion, not hand them off to someone else. You want to do that? Be strong and courageous. God is with you. God is with you. You want to do what's right at work? You want to do the right thing? You want to be obedient? God is with you. God is with you. Work. For I am with you. So it's the knowledge of his presence that motivates us to step out in faith. 
to be about his, his work. Are you about his work? The building individually and corporately, allowing his word to build you up, to, to, to saturate your mind in every sphere that he has us in this life. You see, we're going to get discouraged if we're his servants. If we put our eyes on what we see, we need to put our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. So how can we be strong? Realize he is with us. First Chronicles 28, David says to Solomon, be strong and courageous in act. Do not be fear, be dismayed, for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. You don't lift up your bootstraps and be strong yourself. Be strong because God is with you when you do what's right with your family. God is with you when you do what's right in the church. God is with you when you do what's right at work. God is with you when you do what's right with your kids. God is with you. Be strong and courageous. And then notice back in our passage, he says something very interesting. Verse 5, As for the promise which I made when you came out of Egypt... My spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. It's very interesting because we don't hear much of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. We certainly see the Spirit of God empowering uh, those craftsmen to build the temple. We see the Spirit of God coming upon people like like Samson, you know, and, and we see that happening, right? But we don't see the Spirit in the same way that we see him in the New Testament, although it's the same Spirit. And notice what he says here. As for the promise I made which I made when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Now, although I like the NASB, which I just read, I, I kind of prefer the New King James here on this one. According to the word which I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. He's speaking about which I cut with you. It means to cut a covenant. He's speaking about the law and the covenant that he made with them. According to that which I made with you, which I cut with you, he says, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. And again, there are very few references to the Spirit of God in the Old Testament. There are some in the New Testament point to the Old Testament. We know that, uh, obviously, as I shared, the Spirit was involved in empowering and, and giving skills. But here, what is he talking about here? He says, my Spirit is abiding in your midst. Again, do not fear. Remember before he said, I am with you. Do not fear. He's saying, my Spirit is in your midst. Look at uh, Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. Very interesting. Nehemiah chapter 9. And remember Ezra and Nehemiah? You know, you got the building of, the, of the, 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 the temple and you got the building of the walls, right? These are both post-exilic prophets, right? Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 19. And can't give you all the context for time's sake, but let's just read this portion here. Thou in thy great compassion didst forsake them in the wilderness. Didst not forsake them in the wilderness, excuse me. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light, to light for them the way in which they were to go. And thou didst give thy good spirit to instruct them. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. You gave, there's an Old Testament. You gave your spirit to instruct the Israelites. God gave his word when he cut a covenant, and he gave him his spirit to instruct them. God's word by the spirit is how he works in our hearts. And he says, back in our passage, according to the 
promise which I made with you when I came out of Egypt, according to the covenant I cut with you, my spirit is abiding in your midst. I'm with you. And according to my word, I'm going to be faithful to my word. Do not fear. Do not fear. In the same way I was faithful to them when they came out of Egypt, I will be faithful to you. Do not fear. Do not fear. (laughs) What do we see in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6? Zechariah, post-exilic, same thing, building of the temple, right? Same thing, Zechariah 4. The word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, same guy, by the way, saying, not by might nor power, but by my spirit, declares the Lord. I'm with you, and I'm going to enable you to do what I have called you to do. My spirit is abiding in your midst. Folks, we recognize that we can do nothing apart from him, and when we do that, we trust in him. We're not adequate. We realize that he has given us everything pertaining to life and guidance to the true knowledge of him. One pastor writes, I've never walked into a pulpit without first looking to God and saying, Lord, I am unable. I am insufficient for this task I call upon you today. I say to you that I am thanking God out of that weakness that he can make me strong. We can't do it, but God will do it through us. We trust him. His spirit is abiding in his midst. He is with us. When you want to do what God wants you to do, he will empower you to do it. Don't fear. He says, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Verse 5, do not fear. And then notice, he explains, there's something much more glorious going on that you are not seeing. This work looks so insignificant. It does, looks like nothing in comparison. But what I am doing is way beyond what you could ever imagine. That's why we need to not look at what we see. But we need to trust what God says. Look at, he says, do not fear. Verse 6, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, Once more, in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea, also in the dry land. And I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of the nations. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. Hey, the glory is going to be greater than even the former one, right? And he says here, and this place I shall give peace declares the Lord of hosts. For why they are to not fear, why they are to be strong and courageous, why they are not to compare. For I'm doing something way beyond what you could ever imagine. That's what God's saying. And each element of these verses we see, there's some shaking here, right? There's shaking in verse 6. And there's the coming of the wealth of the nations, verse 6 or 7. Then verse 8, there's the filling of the house with greater glory. And then verse 9, there is peace. There is peace. Now, to understand the prophecy of this verse, we need to recognize uh, that this certainly could have been fulfilled in stages, partially with Christ's first coming. Uh, Certainly we know that Herod, the wicked man under the sovereign hand of God, brought the wealth of the nations, rebuilt this temple, and beautified it. And then Jesus personally came and filled the temple with his glory and through his death brought peace. You bet. You bet. Certainly, we see that could be one stage of fulfillment. But however, I think this prophecy is pointing even farther beyond that to his second coming as judge, setting up his millennial kingdom, which is characterized by peace. And the reason why I can say this is because part of this is interpreted in Hebrews chapter 12. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. 
Part of this is quoted here in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. That's Jesus, okay? For those, if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them from earth, that's speaking of God when he warned them the first covenant, much less shall we escape who turned, who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then. That's the old covenant. When he came the first time, the covenant shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more, this is from Haggai, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. Okay? So he's not talking about this, this first time. He's talking about, as we're going to see, a second coming. Notice what he says. And this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as created things in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since you receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which may we offer to God an acceptable sacrifice of service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. He's talking about that final judgment which brings about his kingdom. He's talking about that. Yet once more, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. And here's what happens. So God is going to shake the nations in judgment. Let's go back to our passage. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more in a little while I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and see in the dry land, and I will shake all the nations. Then verse 7, I will shake the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations and fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Now we have in the New King James that will come with the wealth or the term desire of nations. That's where we have the wonderful portion from Hark the Herald Angels. Uh, come desire of nations, come. But unfortunately, no, I like that song. I don't think that's exactly what this is saying. The term desire can speak here of desired things like wealth. And I think it's speaking of wealth here, the wealth of the nations. I think that's what it's speaking of because he says, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, it's all mine. So what am I saying here? He says he's going to shake the nations and they will come with the wealth of all nations. He's going to be sovereign over everything. He's going to lord over everything and it's going to be happening from the temple. You think your work is insignificant. It is not insignificant. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. All this said, in context, what they saw is a shabby temple in comparison to the first grand and glorious temple, which was ornamented with precious metals, gold and silver, in a little while, something glorious is going to happen. You haven't seen it yet. You haven't seen it yet. Zechariah says, For who has despised the day of the small things? We shouldn't despise things. When we despise the small things, we're looking wrong. We're looking at those things. There are times when God does grand things, and he shares that, and there are times when he does what appear to be small things. And he says here, basically, don't judge by what you see. Don't judge by what you see. Be strong, do not fear, be encouraged. It's God's work, and it has a glorious end way beyond what you are thinking. Way beyond what you are thinking. And in that place... He says, I shall give peace. When God is reigning on the throne, the Prince of Peace on the throne, Christ who brings peace through his blood will reign in the context of peace. He will give peace, declares the Lord. So with that in mind, 
on an intermediate level, the temple they would construct would be redone by Herod. The wealth of the nations would come. Christ would inhabit. He would be glorified. He would bring peace through his death. But on a prophetic level, God would shake the kingdoms with judgment. He would bring, make his house more glorious than you could ever know. And in that place, he would bring peace. He would bring peace. You say, great, but what about us? What about us? We're not building this temple, and it's not the same thing. It seems to be speaking to them here. Well, I think the point is, individually and corporately, when we are about his work, we need to not become discouraged by what we see. We need to trust the Lord. We need to allow him to work through it. We need to not focus on what we see. We need to be obedient to the Lord. You know, think about it. You're cleaning those little noses every day, the little kids. They don't seem to be responding at times, whatever it might be. Keep trusting the Lord. Keep trusting the Lord. God is faithful. You're sharing God's word. They don't seem to respond. Keep sharing the word of God. You're at work. You're not being appreciated. You're trusting the Lord and obeying him. Keep doing what God says. Keep doing what he says. You're being obedient to your gifting, and it doesn't appear to be what other people might think should happen. Don't listen to that. Go to the word of God and be encouraged. Be encouraged because he is with us when we want to obey him. He is with us when we reverence him. He is with us when we are about his work. Father, I thank you so much for your encouragement. You're the God of all encouragement. You're the God of comfort. And I thank you for this reminder that we should not be focused on what we see, but we should be focused on you. We should be strong and courageous and not let your word depart from us. We should not fear, but we should know that you are with us. And we should know that even within these paltry temples, Lord God, that you are working on through your word, you're going to do something glorious that we will see in eternity because of what Christ has done. You will be magnified and glorified. Lord, we thank you so much. And I pray for anyone here who is not part of what you are doing, Lord God, who doesn't know you, Lord God, that they would realize that all is vanity, all is worthless, and it ends in death and suffering, eternal suffering. They would turn to Jesus, the one who died for us and rose from the dead, and believe in him. And Father, for those of us who are committed to your son Jesus, may we be strong and courageous. May we not fear when we know that you are with us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.